Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Pete Burak. I'm filling in for Al today since he is down south on the Good News Cruise. And we are happy for him. We're praying for him. We're praying for all the participants down there that they would encounter the love of God anew, especially in the sunshine. Because those of us here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the lovely Ave Maria radio studios are borderline snowed in. It is it is snowing outside. It is slippery. It was quite hazardous getting to work today. But you know what? It's worth it to be talking to all of you today. And we have an incredible show lined up. Uh, very excited. And the kind of the theme for the first hour uh, comes from the, the words of a French novelist, Leon Blau, where he says, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. And so the first hour we talk about uh, particularly what it looks like to become a saint as a man of God with Sean Breeden, uh, who is the founder of the Warriors of St. Michael. And so we dive into what men in the church need right now and how the Warriors of St. Michael are trying to do something about it. And then we continue celebrating the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. It is the 750th anniversary of his death this year. And so we bring on David Devil to talk about St. Thomas Aquinas and what we can learn from his teachings, what we can learn from his theology, but really more importantly, what we can learn from his life. Because Thomas Aquinas is not some dusty scholar that has no pertinence to our life here and now, but really a man transformed by the love of God, marked by the final words of his life, or not one of the final words of his life, of nothing but you, Lord. Nothing but you, Lord. That was what Thomas Aquinas was trying to do. That was how he was trying to live. And we can learn a lot from that. So David Devil from the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, is here to talk about him. And then in the second hour, we shift a little bit to looking at what is spirit-filled leadership with Brett Powell. And then we'll be closing out the second hour talking with Edmund Miller about Catholic education, what's going on in our schools, how should we understand it, and what we should do about it. So that's all coming up on Crested in the Afternoon. But first, the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Pete. And good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 30th. It's the Feast of St. David Galvin Bermudez. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A verdict is expected soon in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York City. Democratic State Attorney General Letitia James wants a Manhattan judge to order the former president to pay a $370 million fine. She accuses him of falsely inflating the value of his real estate holdings in order to get more favorable loans. Efforts to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border crisis are ramping up. The Republican-led House Homeland Security Committee is marking up articles of impeachment against the Secretary today. A vote on the House floor could come as soon as next week. 
The dignified transfer of the soldiers killed in a drone strike in Jordan will be attended by President Biden. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters Biden spoke with the families of the three fallen service members today. Kirby said the president expressed how proud the nation is of their service. A retired Catholic priest with the Diocese of Orlando, Florida, and his sister were among the four people killed in a Sunday afternoon shooting in Palm Bay, Florida. Father Robert Hoffner, who celebrated his 50th year in the priesthood last year, was allegedly killed by a 24-year-old man named Brandon Kappas. Police shot and killed the alleged gunman later that day. And there's still plenty of time to snap up tickets ahead of tonight's big Mega Millions drawing. The jackpot stands at $311 million with the cash option working out to about $147 million. While tickets are $2 a pop, the odds of winning the grand prize are roughly 1 in 302 million. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al Cresta today, who is cruising the seas down at the Good News Cruise. And so we're sitting in his chair, talking about things that matter most. And right now we want to talk about a battle going on in our church and in our world, particularly as it pertains to men. And it's no secret that the church often struggles to engage men. And our guest right now decided to do something about that. So Sean Breeden is the founder of the Warriors of St. Michael and the marketing consultant at Ave Maria Radio. To learn more about what he's doing, you can go to warriorsofstmichael.com. Sean, welcome to Crescent in the Afternoon. Thanks, Pete. Great, great to be here. So let's start at the beginning here. You clearly identified something, maybe external to yourself that you were observing, and then internally the Lord did something in your heart to prompt you to found the Warriors of St. Michael. So can you just give us a little bit of the, the background of a, what was the Lord doing, and then how did this come to be? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really interesting because historically I I don't really like men's ministry, if I'm honest yeah, with you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's uh, just the way that I'm built, part of it's growing up without a father, you know, my father passed away when I was three, so sometimes groups of men is not the most comfortable place, you know, for me. Uh, and then secondly, in my experience, a lot of men's retreats, it's like just a perpetual talk about sexual purity, mm-hmm. right? Which I didn't feel called to do either one of those, but, but at the same time, I knew within myself that I needed brothers, like, I, I knew that I was fighting a battle, and I felt like I had this image one time in prayer that I was running into battle with a sword, and I looked to the left and my right, and I felt within me, where's my army? Hmm. Where are my brothers? Um, so it's really um, trying to address, you know, that, that feeling within myself that, one, I'm in a battle, and two, I'm not meant to do this alone. Um, that at the same time, I probably wouldn't have actively pursued anything if it wasn't for the way the Lord intervened. So basically, I was working out in my basement, um, and my daughter, who was uh, seven at the time, she's nine now, came up to me and said, can I work out with you? To which I said, absolutely not. This is daddy's time. No, <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I said, I said absolutely. And we have um, uh, a statue of St. Michael down there, and I said, Emma, thinking I was so wise, 
I said, Emma, what if we called this the St. Michael Workout Chapel? Okay, this is just an unfinished part of my basement, concrete, whatever, a weight bench. And she said, no, Daddy, the Warriors of St. Michael Workout Chapel. And when she said it, it's hard to explain, but something started to stir within me. That phrase, Warriors of St. Michael, kept replaying in my head over and over again. I started reading about St. Michael and really started to have a passion that St. Michael is not yet finished with his mission Hmm. to dispel the powers of darkness. Um, If he's the commander of the armies of the Lord, I would like to be friends with him, Hmm. right? And it became clear over time that that it was developing into something specifically for men. Hmm. Uh, And again, wasn't something I asked for necessarily, and yet I am so passionate that God wants to bring men back into the fold and to really take our place as leaders, as protectors, as fathers, as brothers, and not to just sit on the sidelines. I want to highlight something that you've referenced now several times about the fact that we're in a battle. I think intrinsically, most people would be aware of of a conflict in our own hearts in terms of I want to do this and I still do this or I have these you know competing desires. There's so there's a battle kind of raging in our own hearts in our minds and then in culture. What when you talk about the battle, can you describe a little bit more about what you mean by that? Is it is it an internal thing? Is it an external thing? Is it some combination? How do you how how should we understand the battle? Yeah, that's a great question. I I do think it's definitely a both and. Um, If we don't conquer the darkness in our own hearts with the grace of God, we don't stand a chance in fighting the battles in the culture. Um, But certainly, the culture does not do a lot to help us out in that regard. Um, So, when you look at the landscape, a lot of the things on my mind are things about when men, you know, manhood is talked about at all, it's often framed as toxic masculinity, right? Like this, there's this, there's always a qualifier, you know, um, that there's something intrinsically, you know, uh, off or wrong about the way men are, and they need to change that. Um, And really, what I keep coming back to is there's an Old Testament verse um, that I, I talk about a lot where, you know, God says, the Lord, it says in Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a warrior, Lord is his name. And, and what I always think of is that, wait a second, I am made in the image of God. Therefore, if God is a warrior, then I am a warrior. And I think people get hung up sometimes on sort of the stereotypical masculine language. Like, well, I'm, I'm kind of a gentle guy. I don't really associate with being a warrior. You know, I didn't play sports, whatever it is people can kind of discount themselves um, from the battle because they're just, they don't identify as that stereotypical, you know, macho kind of guy. Um, but what I always say is that the battle is spiritual. So the, the strong guy that you see that plays all the sports, his muscles aren't going to help him in this battle, right? But all of us need to discern whether it's engaging with the culture of death, in this case, fighting for the fact that men exist and are a distinct thing, right? That you can't just choose what you want to be and that masculinity has a specific role, a specific calling, a specific plan of God. And to really, you know, fight for that, 
Um, there's a common phrase that you've know, probably heard many times. It says that if we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. Mm. And I think it's a matter of saying, at, at this point, obviously we stand for Jesus, but right now we're just standing for the natural law. And like that enough is, could put you on the chopping block in some situations. It takes real courage to say biology exists these days, you know, where it's an interesting place where we find ourselves just stating, you know, facts you know, is uh, takes an act of courage, but it really does. Yeah. No, it reminds me of uh, Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about the battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the powers and principalities, the rulers of this present darkness, that he very much situates the battle as not so much I am fighting another human, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm fighting the evil one, I'm fighting the ideas of hell, I'm fi- not the idea of hell, but the ideas that originate in hell, and I'm, I'm fighting a spiritual battle that certainly at times bleeds into the natural world because we're spiritual and corporal you know we're we're one we're both body and soul so there's a there's a combination of how they they work together i'm i'm wondering as as you've started to wade into this and say where's my army where are my brothers what have been some of the guiding principles of saying okay if if this is what the lord's calling us to to be a brotherhood to be an army to be a warrior how do, what have you used to invite guys into that? How have you painted the picture in such a way that they can say, okay, yes, that's something I need, and I can understand why the Warriors of St. Michael or something like it mm-hmm. would help me in this time? That is uh, always on my mind. I, I think that in many times there's a lot of uh, you know men's ministries out there that have a great structure, have great suggestions of things you might do. Um, as far as daily prayer and sacrifices and times of brotherhood. But my mind always goes to the core of it of how do you change culture, right? How do you make it a culture that where a man desires holiness, right? Um, so some of the things I think about, to give you an idea of just the practicals before people wonder, like, what exactly do you do? I'll mention that, and then I'll sort of frame it. I think the framing of it is is just as important. But one, we encourage men to enter into what we call the warrior's daily rule, where uh, it's not a prescribed list of prayer and sacrifice, but we really encourage men and try to equip them to hear the voice of the Lord and to spend time in prayer asking the Lord, when do you want me to pray? How long do you want me to pray? How do you want me to pray? Would you like me to read scripture? to spend more time listening, to pray the rosary, and really invite men into that dialogue. Because if God is not the Lord of your prayer life, what exactly is he the Lord of, right? It's not enough to say, here's the list of 20 things that a lot of Catholic people do and just assume that's what my life looks like right now as far as how I engage in prayer. The second thing is being part of a men's group of four to six men, uh, a very fruitful and time-tested way to engage with brothers. Um, The third one is a large group meeting once a month, typically from September to May, basically following the school year. And then the fourth one is unity among parishes, where we reach out and say, do you want to have a a men's night together? Do you want to do a service project together to sort of open that door to unity? Um, And if you're like me, I look out and I say, all that stuff exists already right? Like, there's plenty of things that men do. A monthly meeting is a pretty common way to to do that. But I I see it really like Ezekiel 37, this pile of dry bones. What What is a skeleton? It's a structure, 
right? There's bones. There's a structure of things that you can do, but it might be absolutely lifeless depending on whether the men involved are actively seeking the Lord for what he wants to do at their parish in this time, you know, with the men that they are working with. So I really think it's up to individual men to say, I'm, I'm tired of just plugging into like just a DVD series. It's a great tool, but if it's just sort of plug and play and it's just cruise control and they're not investing and really entering into the heart of the Lord and saying, how do I reach the men of my parish? God wants to give his heart to men at a specific parish. He wants to give them the word of the Lord to, to raise these dry bones and create an army, right? Yeah. Um, so it's really just kind of entrusting ourselves to the Lord and saying, God, we know you want to reach men more than we do. How can we respond to that stirring that you're, you're putting on our hearts? we got about 30 seconds left, Sean. I, what would be, if a guy's listening to this, or a, a very devoted wife, what would be the one thing you would want them to do, one takeaway from everything you're saying? I would say one thing we keep coming back to as a leadership team all the time is isolation. Combating isolation leads to discouragement. When you're discouraged, it leads to more isolation, and it sort of perpetuates. So the biggest thing we've been praying about is cultivating a radical sense of belonging, hmm. loving men where they are and inviting them into it. And if somebody's interested in this, uh, how can they get more information? Yeah, go to our website, warriorsofstmichael.com, and uh, there's an inquiry form. We'd be happy to, to touch base and help you with your men's ministry. And let's all commit to be praying for Sean and these men who are standing up as warriors of St. Michael. This is so needed in our churches and in our parishes, in our culture for men to stand on their two feet, knowing who they are in Christ, and doing something about the challenges that are facing them. Thank you, Sean, for what you're doing. This is Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Ferrer. We'll be right back. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The disclosure of a name in the ancient world belonged to the order of trust and intimacy. And so when God revealed his name to Moses, it was an extraordinary outreach to us, saying uh, that we were called to an intimate, trusting relationship with him. And so we should always reverence this name as a great gift. We should obviously never use God's name to curse or to blaspheme or to berate others. God's name is meant to bring blessing. And likewise, the vain use. Vain means empty. Uh, so some of these expressions like, oh my God, or you know, and so on, uh, need to be avoided as well. Vain means empty, and those are using God's name as an empty kind of expression of exasperation. And then finally, never ever to use God's name to swear an oath falsely. God is the God of truth. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. What are atheism and agnosticism? How are they similar? and how do they differ? The Catholic Catechism calls atheism one of the most serious problems of our times. In paragraphs 2123 through 2127, the Catechism says, the term covers many very different phenomena, such as practical materialism, which restricts man's needs to space and time. Humanism considers man to be an end to himself and in control of his own history. A third form of atheism is liberation, which seeks to free man 
through economic and social liberation, claiming that religion, by its very nature, thwarts man's emancipation by holding that there is an after and better life, thus deceiving man and discouraging man from working for a better life here on earth. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. In the midst of our culture today, in this age of relativism, which wants to grant Jesus some significance, but not so much, so we'll give him wise man, great leader, inspiring preacher, great teacher, prophet. You don't get that option when you claim to be God. What reasons do we have to believe that he is who he said he is? And it's important, again, to employ the use of our reason and to understand that faith is not blind. My faith, and please God, the faith of everyone here, is not blind. It rests on something. It rests on a number of things, not least of which is my own experience of God, but it also has something substantial which can be claimed through history. We're not talking about a galaxy long, long ago, far, far away, when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a precise moment in history which has been testified to by countless testimonies, and you and I have access to them. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. This year marks the 750th anniversary of the death of the Dominican friar, St. Thomas Aquinas, a doctor of the church, ranking with the fathers of the church in honor and esteem. He died at the age of 49 on March 7th, 1274, on his way to the Council of Lyons. Because his feast is currently celebrated on January 28th, we thought it would be fitting to look at his life now and to remember his impact and to understand why this saint matters today. So, joining us today on Crescent in the Afternoon is David Devil. He is the Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and the Senior Contributor at the Imaginative, Imaginative Conservative. David, welcome to Crescent in the Afternoon. Thanks for having me, Pete. I'm excited to talk about St. Thomas Aquinas because I think a lot of people have some perceptions about him, but don't really thoroughly know him. So let's start here. Why should we care about a guy who died 750 years ago, and how does he impact us today? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as a, as a professor, I, you know, I have to say that his writings are important. Uh, you know, when he was being considered for canonization, uh, you know, some people objected, well, the, he doesn't have, have many miracles. 
And, uh, you know, one cardinal actually responded, every article that he wrote was itself a miracle. So his writing is very important. His theology, his uh, philosophical texts have been regarded as a, basically a touchstone for Catholic thought. Uh, Pope Leo XIII in the, the 19th century, you know, pointed us back again to Thomas as the common doctor, and he's a doctor of the Church. He teaches us. But uh, I wrote an article in Catholic World Report making the point that it's not just uh, his writings, but it's his life and his death. He was a saint before he was a doctor. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the article. It's titled, Nothing But You, Lord, on the Death of St. Thomas Aquinas. And there's several different pieces I'd love to pull out and talk to you about. The first was in early on in the article you said, Thomas was a man of truth. I, I think what a remarkable way to honor somebody, to say you're a man of truth. And I think in today's day and age, to be understood as somebody who loves, values, and proclaims the truth is increasingly rare. What did you mean by that, as Thomas was a man of truth? Well, he was regarded as somebody who, you know, I mean, we have, as Americans, we have the legend of George Washington, who could not tell a lie. Uh, but Thomas was that kind of a man as well. And in the article, what I was bringing up was that some, some people, including the poet Dante, thought that, that Thomas's death uh, came about as the result of being poisoned uh, by a nobleman who thought that Thomas was going to make a criminal charge against him. Now, historians don't really think that's probably right, but the legend itself bears something of truth that why would people believe this? Well, because anybody who was going to be accused by Thomas uh, would probably be in trouble because he was a man of truth, and he put that first and foremost because he worshipped uh, the Lord, who himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, and you, you described him as a servant of truth and not trying to master truth, that he, he submitted in obedience to the truth as the Lord revealed it, which is another thing that I think is so pertinent for today's kind of culture, is Thomas was in a, a discovery mode. He wanted to receive something, not so much create something. He wanted to allow the Lord to, through the Holy Spirit, help him understand something that was outside of himself as opposed to generating it from himself. Can you speak to the distinction there that Thomas being a, you know, fascinated with understanding what God has revealed as opposed to like the the modern mind, which seems to be such a, a project of self-discovery or self-creation when it comes to truth? Yeah, I mean, well, you can see that even in... Uh even in the way he wrote. Now, some people have not read a lot of Thomas Aquinas because they think it's a little bit dry. He doesn't write like the Church Fathers or St. John Henry Newman in a kind of a personal style. But, uh, you know, as Father Robert Spitzer, uh, the great Jesuit, likes to say, uh, you know, quoting Chesterton, you know, that Thomas Aquinas dared to be boring uh, because he knew that he was focusing on the truth. It wasn't about uh, you know, assembling the greatest literary reputation, but instead it was about being as complete and accurate as he could be about the truth as he understood it and as the Lord revealed it to him. One thing that's really noticeable about him is that if you do read any of his works, his his great summas, these collections of, of articles treating of uh, the mysteries of the faith and, and the nature of reality, is that he takes on uh, all the objections, and he'd made it his goal to be as accurate as possible about those against whom he was arguing. 
you know, these days, many people, when they make arguments, you know, they, they try to create straw men. They try to create parodies of what other people are, are saying in order to more easily say, ah, you know, I've, I've beaten you. But that was not Thomas's way. He wanted the truth as straight and as accurate as possible, and he was not willing to take shortcuts because he knew that that's not what the Lord would have him do. Yeah, that's beautiful. You had this line in, in the article, again, that we've referenced in the Catholic World Report, Nothing But You, Lord, on the death of St. Thomas Aquinas. You said, Thomas, he wasn't just a brain and a vat filled with holy water. He was a living, breathing man with an exciting story. So for those of us ignorant of the exciting story of Thomas Aquinas, can you give us a little rundown of what this man's life was like? Yeah, so Thomas was actually the son of a count and a countess, and he spent his childhood in a castle. Um, his father uh, was named Count Landolf of Aquino, or, you know, Aquinas, that's where we get this. And he was a, a, a knight in the service of Frederick II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, well, there's a lot of tension in the Church these days. But, of course, uh, there's always been tension in the Church. And <laughs> the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II was in a kind of uh, major squabble with the Pope at the time. And so when Thomas started school... Uh, he began school in one place and had to change because of these tensions between uh, the Pope and uh, the, the Holy Roman Emperor, because his father was on the side of the Holy Roman Emperor. But he went and he discovered uh, at his new school in Naples uh, this wonderful new order, the Dominican Order. And there was a, there was a friar there named John of St. Julian who captured Thomas's attention uh, with his great learning and with his uh, great holiness. And so Thomas determined that he was going to join this upstart order, which had just been established, you know, not very, not very long ago, within, you know, the last 50 years. Um, and his parents did not like this. And so at, at one point, they kept him imprisoned in the castle uh, of San Giovanni at Roccasecca, where he, where he was from, and tried to convince him that he was not going to join this upstart order. They were okay with him being a priest, but they said, why don't you go and be, you know, be in a Benedictine abbey? You've got an uncle who's an abbot there. You know, that's, that's, much, more, uh, that's much more respectable. But Thomas w was determined to be a Dominican. He believed that the Lord was calling it to him. And part of the story is that uh, one of the things that his brothers did to, to turn him away from this Dominican uh, idea was to send a prostitute into him. <laughs> and the story is that he drove her out. Some of the stories say with the fireplace poker or perhaps a burning log, but you know, the idea is the same that mm. he was not going to be, be tempted and driven away from what the Lord was calling him to. And eventually his parents gave in and he joined that Dominican order. And he spent a lot of time uh, not only teaching, but traveling around and preaching to ordinary people, as well as teaching the great uh, and the intellectuals. Yeah. And one of the things the Lord seems to enjoy doing in raising up these great saints is giving them companions and partners and confidants, and then often, you know, leaders to, to help them develop. And one of the incredible parts of Thomas's story is that he ends up studying with one, as you call them, one of the greatest minds of the time, Albert the Great. I, I'm curious, not so, I, I'd love to hear the dynamic between the two of them, what their relationship was like, but maybe could you pull out 
the significance of someone like Albert uh, mentoring Thomas and the impact that that had on his his writings and his his thought. Yeah, Albert the Great was he was a bit like uh, you know he was a bit like Aristotle. Um, he was one of these medieval figures who was a priest, but he was an intellectual, and he was very interested in natural science. There's there's a great legend. I don't know. I don't know, you know, whether they've ever established whether it's true, but that Albert the Great had sort of created a robot of some sort at the time. Mm. Uh, but he was a great mind who believed that what was revealed by the faith and what was revealed in the natural order were all part of the same picture, that faith and reason went together and that, that knowledge is one, that great Catholic conviction. And he recognized in Thomas, um, you know, something of a genius. Um, Thomas was uh, reportedly a kind of a quiet young man. He was, as most of the most of the depictions of him show, he was perhaps a little bit heavy, and so many of his companions uh, called him the dumb ox. Dumb meaning not necessarily stupid, but you know he mm-hmm. didn't speak a lot. But it had that implication that well, perhaps he didn't have much to say. But Albert recognized uh, through his conversation with him and his teaching with him that this was not simply a dumb ox, but he said, uh, you know, according to the report, we call this young man a dumb ox, but his bellowing in doctrine will one day resound throughout the world. And so it was important that somebody recognized that in Thomas and sent him on the way. And this is, you know, I think this is a great story throughout uh, throughout Christian history that it's quite often um, others who recognize our callings and they recognize our gifts, and Albert recognized Thomas's, and uh, he pushed him forward in the the Dominican order, uh, and he also wanted him near him, uh, so they spent a good bit of time together at the University of Paris, um, as well as the University of of Cologne, uh, working together side by side, and they were they were rediscovering the work of the great uh, philosopher Aristotle and trying to figure out how all of the knowledge that Aristotle had fit with what the Church uh, taught. Mm. So Albert was incredibly important to him as a mentor and as the one who kind of discovered him. We have time for one quick story before we got to take a break, and then we'll come back to Thomas. Could you just share one of the more extraordinary stories that that have been passed down regarding his life? Yeah, so, well, I mean, one of the things that has was told about him is, you know, and perhaps this is connected, uh, what was amazing, he was a heavy guy, but he was known to have this gift of levitation. <laughs> and so toward the end of uh, his life, um, he was reported to have been seen after he had um, finished his treatise on the Eucharist, um, and he was in the chapel, Several of the brothers saw him lifted into the air while he was praying, and then they heard a voice that was coming from the crucifix saying, You have written well of me, Thomas. What reward would you have for your labor? And that's the the title for my my article is his response, Nothing But You, Lord. Amazing. We're with David. We'll be right back to talk about Thomas Aquinas. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. 
You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating Him like a magic wand, a rabbit's foot, only going to Him when we need something? The results if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine. Putting coins in, then pulling the one-armed bandit and expecting to win a big prize. We have to have that relationship with God so we can truly do His will and be truly happy. So follow Him, not just once in a while, but every single moment. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. In the sixth rule of St. Ignatius of Loyola's 14 Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, he instructs us to extend ourselves in some suitable way of doing penance, to assist us in changing ourselves and our response to the experience of spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The penance is suitable when it counters the precise tendency to flight we feel in the spiritual desolation and permits us to act against the specific form of desolation we are undergoing. St. Ignatius is directing us to consider a suitable penance that will be an action that counters the very actions the desolation is pushing one towards. For example, if the lies of the enemy during spiritual desolation make a person feel far from God, a suitable way of doing penance could be an intentional turning to God in prayer and with trust. What suitable form of penance might you practice in spiritual desolation? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al. He is on the Good News Cruise, and we're happy for him as we 
suffer through the snowstorm that has hit us here in Ann Arbor, but we're happy for the sunshine that I'm sure that he is enjoying. We've been talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, who we're celebrating the 750th anniversary of his death. Uh, David Devil is here. He's the Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. And we closed the last segment talking about one of the more extraordinary kind of stories regarding Thomas of that of levitation, of direct communication with the crucifix, and the voice that the, the, the brothers heard him say, the question was asked of Thomas, like, what, what would reward would you have for your labor? And Thomas's response, which should be our heart cry in relation to the Lord, is nothing but you, Lord. David, let's keep talking about Thomas Aquinas, and one of the things he gets a lot of credit for, of course, is his writings, but you've mentioned several times in the article you wrote for the Catholic World Report about his preaching. What was yeah. what was he known for regarding his preaching? Well, I mean, he was known for his ability to uh, summarize the truths of the faith in a way that was memorable and uh, was understandable. Uh, you know, you might a lot of people think that... Um, you know, Thomas Aquinas, because he was an intellectual, all this stuff was long, that Thomas was one of these medieval philosophers who was making, you know, 8,000 distinctions in every single article. But what most scholars of St. Thomas, including a former colleague of mine, John Boyle, like uh, to say, is that Thomas was notable because he could make a few distinctions that were the right distinctions, and he could organize things well. So, for instance, um, when he was preaching to people, he developed ways of preaching about how the virtues and the sacraments were connected together um, in ways that helped people understand their own lives and how it is that the Lord's gifts and the sacraments could help them to develop the strength that they needed to serve the Lord. Um, so he spent, uh, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about him is that at this time in history, even in the West, not every priest uh, celebrated the Mass every day, but he did. Um, and during, you know, several periods, we know that he preached every day to the people in certain towns for like the whole season of Lent. So he was a man who was, you know, not afraid to preach to the ordinary people, and he had a gift for making it simple and connected and drawing the right distinctions. Yeah, you described his life as a cycle of praying, preaching, teaching, writing, journeying. You got that from the old Catholic Encyclopedia Praying, preaching, teaching, writing, journeying. That sounds like a Dominican, as we understand yeah. them, and that sounds like uh, a saintly life. I'm I'm wondering, in the context that he was doing these things, praying, preaching, teaching, writing, and journeying, in the in the current, in the moment that he was in, in the culture he was in, why do you think the Lord raised him up? I mean, was was there something particularly going on in the 1250s that needed a, a Thomas Aquinas, or do you think it was more for what was to come? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think he, w he was raised up for his time, but I think we've seen the durability of his thought and his spirituality uh, for the rest of the time. I think he's, you know, I think he's an all-timer, yeah. along with, you know, St. Augustine and St. John Chrysostom and those. But if you, if you want to know particularly what I think was important was what I mentioned earlier, that, uh, you know, uh, particularly in Western, Western Christian lands, but everywhere else, uh, Plato was the philosopher that everybody had kind of taken in, and they'd figured out, well, what, what do we take from Plato that's helpful for us in understanding our faith? Aristotle's works had been lost for a long time, and in the 13th century, 
Uh, now they had been kind of recovered, but people didn't quite know what to do with them. How do, we, how do we approach Aristotle's thought? Some of it seemed to lead in heretical directions. Aristotle, for instance, didn't think that, uh, that it was necessary that the world had a beginning in time. And St. Thomas Aquinas took that, and he said, well, yeah, logically speaking, Aristotle is correct. God would not have had to begin the world in time. He could have made it. But we know from Revelation that the world did begin in time. So Thomas was able to make those distinctions between logical truths and what actually is true uh, in a way such that he could bring Aristotle into the church in a way that was, uh, if, if you will, helpful and not destructive to the faith. And I think it took a mind like his that knew the whole tradition um, and, could, you know, had memorized all of, uh, you know, a lot of these texts uh, to understand and put together the Bible and the fathers and the philosophers as well. And that's what, uh, that's what he's known for, because it was very controversial uh, to quote Aristotle or to use him in your thought. And Thomas was the kind of mind who could do that and could, in, in a way, baptize Aristotle. So I think that's the, uh, the time-bound need for him and why the Lord raised him up at that particular time. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, you mentioned something earlier about his ability to maybe learn from Albert the Great or in conjunction with Albert the Great uh, to, to bring together faith and reason, that Thomas was not intimidated by science and by natural discovery, but saw that as a, a complementary um, additional data point, if you will, to the overall pursuit of truth. And one of the things I've encountered a lot in the various ministry work that I've done is that there's this perception that the church is either anti-science or uh, suspicious of science or just doesn't have any time for science or the reason or reason. And it seems like uh, Thomas Aquinas is a great example and, and maybe one of the leaders in the faith of of bringing those two together. How would how would you answer that if somebody said, well, no, the, the church doesn't doesn't believe in science, or the church doesn't think any of this is valuable. You're just in the world of fairies and, you know, fairy dust, and, and it's all spiritual. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a very common, a very common conception. And so there, you know, this is part of a kind of historical view that people have is that, well, kind of nothing happened in the Middle Ages. Well, that's actually not true. And there are a number of historians of science, uh, you know, and, and philosophers of science, particularly the, the, the late Benedictine uh, father, Stanley Yockey, but many others who pointed out that actually science, you know, continued to be developed during the middle. You know, I, I, I mentioned that Albert the Great was reputed to have uh, created a kind of a robot. I mean, you know, they were clearly they were clearly doing even experimental science during that period. And a fair view of it is that, yes, they did continue, and that science developed in the West, again, in large part because of that conception that the world was knowable and that it was ordered because God is a God of order, and he has created us with minds that can discover the patterns within it that not only help us to build things for ourselves, but help us to see God himself, who is, in a way, revealed in that order. Uh, so, you know, if people talk about proofs for the existence of God, 
St. Thomas uh, writes the famous five ways. Well, they're all about philosophical proofs based on the nature of our natural order, because he believed that God was revealed through the things that he had made. And that, in a way, is, you know, is going beyond science, but it's not unconnected to science. So Thomas had no problem with, uh, with science, uh, and he had no problem with looking at the world and not just having knowledge of what to do with it or how it works, but knowing what it pointed back to, namely the God who created everything. Shifting gears slightly, if, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, I'm convinced St. Thomas Aquinas is important, and I, I know he made a massive contribution to our faith, but I have no idea where to start. I've picked up the Summa, and it's confusing. I've read some of his... Okay, maybe I like some of the hymns that he's written, but I, I don't know where to begin with Thomas Aquinas. How would you recommend somebody kind of wading into the waters that is Thomas without getting overwhelmed? Yeah, well, I think there are some very good guides uh, that, you know, the late Father James Shaw liked to talk about how great books are great, but you often need those pretty good guides. And he was thinking of people uh, like uh, Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and Joseph Pieper. And so I think there are some very good uh, works on Thomas that can help people be introduced. One of them was the late Ralph McInerney, who was a professor at Notre Dame, uh, and he was he wrote a great book uh, called basically on being a, a peeping Thomist. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of a funny a funny title based on the play on on a, a peeping Tom. But it gives a kind of a guide to looking at the way in which Thomas thinks. Another great one is uh, Peter Kreeft, uh, still living philosopher, who's written some great uh, takes on how to read Thomas's famous. Summa Theologia, his Summa of Theology. So I think taking a look at those uh, will then uh, help you as you read them. But I think people can read, uh, you know, Thomas's great Summas even, if you go go kind of slowly. Flannery O'Connor, the great 20th century fiction writer, uh, liked to call herself uh, a hillbilly Thomist, and she had a (laughs) habit of reading one article of Thomas per night and sitting there and digesting it. Um, and I think that that's something that people can do, is take your time and work through these questions. Because as I said, Thomas is not necessarily like every medieval thinker. He doesn't have, you know, 300 distinctions you have to memorize. He has a few, and he gets at the ones that matter. So if you go slowly, and you have some good guides like Ralph McInerney and Peter Kreeft, uh, I think you can actually uh, read through him a little bit by little bit. As as we close out this segment, what occurred to me was there's a lot of, dare I say, famous things that he taught in terms of Aristotle and, and then, you know, some of the things on the Eucharist and others. Is there anything that you consider that people don't, or, or, like teachings of Thomas that are under-discussed or less understood or less popular, but that you think are very significant contributions to Catholic thought? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of them is that Thomas was very clear uh, on what the goal of the moral life was. Hmm. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, just as they think that the, the Church is against science, they think, well, the Church's moral teaching, is, it's all about how to make you miserable or something like that. <laughs> uh, but for Thomas, the moral life was about happiness. 
And he understood that everybody is ultimately aiming for happiness in some way. I mean, he says, you know, even the person who commits suicide is aiming for happiness in a way, you know, he doesn't want to suffer anymore. Now, it may be the wrong way, but aiming for happiness is what we, what we do. And so I think his teachings on the moral life as the path to happiness are something that not enough people talk about, that Thomas leads us the way uh, to be happy in the proper way. And he takes us along the path uh, of the virtues, but also, as I mentioned before, the sacraments, um, as they are the gifts that the Lord gives us in order to follow him and to seek the kingdom, but all the other things, too, that will be added. We're talking with David Evil, Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas, and author of an article that came out in Catholic World Report, Nothing But You, Lord, on the Death of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, David, if somebody's interested in learning more about St. Thomas or connecting with more of what you're doing, how can they find you? Well, I'm here at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and we have a fantastic uh, graduate program, a Master's in Historical Theology, where you'll be able to learn about Thomas and the other great figures of the Church. Um, go to sttom.edu, and you can search for us uh, under Theology and connect with us uh, to study some historical theology, or if you're of a philosophical bent, our great Center for Thomistic Studies here awesome. at the University of St. Thomas is also very much focused on the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So look us up at stthom.edu. That's S-T-T-H-O-M dot E-D-U. This is Crescent in the Afternoon. We'll be right back. The Call, a call from God. Father Mitch Pacwa shares his experience. I certainly had... Uh, bit of opposition. My father wasn't pleased with this at all, and he kept arguing with me. Once when I was 12, he said to me, what do you want to be a priest for? Why don't you be a doctor? You don't have to be a priest to help people. You can be a doctor and get married, have kids. And I said to him then, Dad, if I was a doctor and I help people get better, that would be very good. But later on, they're going to die anyway. So if I'm a priest and I hear somebody's confession and they go to heaven, that lasts forever. So that's better. And he didn't know what to say, and he continued to oppose the idea over the next years. Yet, that didn't stop me, and uh, even when he said, I'm going to disinherit you if you become a priest. And on the day of my first Mass, he did. But, as I also said to him then, he told me, okay, you're out of my will. I said, Dad, I can't keep it anyway. It doesn't matter. I'm a Jesuit, and we can't keep the money, so it really doesn't affect me. The issue is... I'm trying to follow what God, our Lord, is asking of me. And this has been where I have found the greatest joy, that doing what I believe through my own prayer and through reflection and thinking about it and moving from a little boy's idea of what a priest would be like all the way to now in my early 50s, you know, realizing that this is exactly what I think is going to please God the most, and that's what I want to do. To please God. For information on the priesthood or religious life, log on to www.ewtn.com slash religious life.
welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. What a great first hour. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Sean Breeden, the founder of the Warriors of St. Michael, looking at what it means to have a warrior spirit, what it means to understand that we're living in a battle, and what we can do about it as men. And I love that image that Sean shared of uh, that dream he had, that of entering into battle, holding a sword, looking to his left and his right, and saying, where are my brothers? And I just can't emphasize enough how much I've found that brotherhood and, of course, sisterhood, to have people by your side walking the walk, fighting the fight, to both encourage, to challenge, to empower, and to just be with you in the battle is so critical in our life as disciples. I mean, it's absolutely essential. Jesus understood this. This is why he built a community of people around him that eventually, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, became the church. And this is what the church is supposed to be when she's healthiest. And this is what Thomas Aquinas understood, is when the church is alive and healthy, she is a living body. She's not a collection of dry bones. She's a community of people on mission. We are sent. We have a purpose. We're on a journey. And the, and she is ultimately the ship that carries us to salvation. And so um, what a tremendous first hour talking about sainthood and growing in holiness as disciples with both Sean Breeden and David Devil. Second hour is coming up. We got Brett Powell to talk about spirit-filled leadership, and then we're going to close out the show with Edmund Miller talking about Catholic education. And throughout all of this, focusing on how do we become holy and live as saints. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al Cresta. We'll be right back after the break. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, friends, and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am not Al Cresta. I am Pete Barak filling in for Al today. Al has chosen the better portion. He is down in... Uh, on a cruise, the Good News Cruise, sponsored by Ave Maria Radio, and we are very happy for him here. I can honestly say that. We are delighted for, I'm sure, the sunshine he's experiencing and the fellowship and all that. As we look out the window at the the blowing and drifting of winter in January up here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, what a what a time to be alive! But Jesus is Lord. The gospel's still moving. The Holy Spirit's still moving in the hearts and minds of those uh, around the world. And that's why we're here, because Ave Maria Radio and EWTN, we're committed to helping people meet Jesus, be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and understand and live the gospel. And today's show has been uh, been delightful. The first hour was uh, a wonderful conversation with Sean Breeden and David Devil, both about the warriors of St. Michael and what uh, the Lord is calling us to as men of God, and then with David understanding St. Thomas Aquinas in a deeper way. In the second hour... We're going to be looking at spirit-filled leadership with Brett Powell. Brett works for the Archdiocese of Vancouver. We're going to be talking about if the world needs disciples, well, disciples need spirit-filled leaders. And so how can we understand leadership in the light of Christ, in the light of church teaching, and in uh, application to our lives as disciples? How, how are each of us called to lead? And then at the end of the second hour, we're going to be talking with Edmund Miller about education and freedom and how they're linked. 
And what the modern world and the modern experiment has been of redefining freedom, redefining truth, and the impact that that's had on education, and the role of education in rediscovering what it means to be human. And as we rediscover what it means to be human and what it means to exist and to truly be free, that gives us the opportunity and the uh, great joy of coming alive in Christ and coming alive both as bodies, souls, and our minds as well. So this is coming up on Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al. Looking forward to this hour. But first, the news with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Pete. And good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, January 30th. It's the Feast of St. David Galvin Bermudez. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. A verdict is expected soon in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial in New York City. Democratic State Attorney General Letitia James wants a Manhattan judge to order the former president to pay a $370 million fine. She accuses him of falsely inflating the value of his real estate holdings in order to get more favorable loans. Efforts to impeach GHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of the border crisis are ramping up. The Republican-led House Homeland Security Committee is marking up articles of impeachment against the Secretary today. A vote on the House floor could come as soon as next week. The dignified transfer of the soldiers killed in a drone strike in Jordan will be attended by President Biden. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters Biden spoke with the families of the three fallen service members today. Kirby said the president expressed how proud the nation is of their service. A retired Catholic priest with the Diocese of Orlando, Florida, and his sister were among the four people killed in a Sunday afternoon shooting in Palm Bay, Florida. Father Robert Hoffner, who celebrated his 50th year in the priesthood last year, was allegedly killed by a 24-year-old man named Brandon Kappas. Police shot and killed the alleged gunman later that day. And there's still plenty of time to snap up tickets ahead of tonight's big Mega Millions drawing. The jackpot stands at $311 million, with the cash option working out to about $147 million. While tickets are $2 a pop, the odds of winning the grand prize are roughly 1 in 302 million. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al today. One of the things that the church is inviting us to do is to engage in the new evangelization, to go out on mission, and to make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that is core to the making of disciples is leadership. And not just any old leadership, but spirit-filled leadership. Here to talk about that is Brett Powell. Brett is a missionary disciple who has been involved in full-time ministry for 30 years. Currently, he's the Archbishop's Delegate of Development and Ministries for the Archdiocese of Vancouver. Brett, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Pete, thank you. Pleased to be here. Thank you. I'm excited for this conversation. The full disclosure to the audience, Brett and I were on his podcast not that long ago talking about many of these same things. So I'm I'm hoping we can create or recreate some of the magic that came from that podcast. But let's start here. The making of disciples is intrinsically tied to leadership. How how would you describe how the concept or the, the framework of leadership 
informs and helps and propels the making of disciples in the church. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me begin with a definition of leadership, and the one that I've come across uh, is probably the simplest definition I've ever heard, um, but also I think the most aligned to our faith. And it actually comes from John Maxwell. No secret there, John Maxwell is a huge leadership guru that's out there right now, and he defines leadership simply as influence. Leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less, is what he says. And he goes on to say, so if you think you're a leader and no one is following you, then you're only going for a walk, (laughs) which is kind of funny. But when you think about this, that is the life of Christ. You know, when he went up to Matthew in the Gospels, the pages of the Gospels, and he just says two words, follow me, and Matthew leaves everything to follow him. That's about as clear a picture of influence as you can imagine. But when it comes to evangelization, I think that's really what it comes down to, is a lot of the work is very, um, on a human level, it's all about influence. And um, you see that in all kinds of relationships. You see it in relationships in the home, parents influencing their children. You see it in relationships of friends. You see it in relationships in a parish community. All over the place, we see it to be true that leadership really is, is influence. I'm glad you referenced John Maxwell, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the distinction between maybe what would be secular leadership and and Christian spirit-filled leadership. But one of his other quotes is that everything rises and falls with leadership. And I wonder what—I don't want to go too off on a tangent here, but just briefly, can we talk a little bit about the phenomenon of kind of leadership gurus right now in our culture? And what do you think is— good about that? And then maybe what would be some of the, the pitfalls that come with it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there it's a huge industry, right? Leadership development is a multi-billion dollar industry. I think the last time I checked, it was $15 billion in the United States alone. And that's only in corporate world. Wow. That doesn't include the nonprofit, doesn't include academia or anything like that. And yeah, a lot of it is... Um, well, I mean, we don't have a lot of time, so cut to the chase. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of things that is presented as leadership is really just lubricating the system of human relationships, which is really about manipulation. Mm-hmm. It is fundamentally to get people to do what you want them to do. But Christian leadership is to, you know, to, to lean on the definition of love from Thomas Aquinas, to love is to will the good of the other. It is to will the best things for other people. It is not to get them to do something that either you don't want to do or you want them to do and that kind of thing. It, it, that's, that's the real motive test. The real motive test is laying your life down in service of other people, being a complete gift of self so that they can experience all that God has for them. It starts by recognizing somebody's potential, their dignity, and their worth as a human being and wanting what is best for them. The motive is really, that I think, the thing that separates real leadership from all of its counterfeit forms is your motive. What do you want? What do you will for the person that you are, quote-unquote, trying to lead? It has to be for their benefit. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's very, very well put. And the the quintessential perfect leader uh, is Jesus. And everything we can understand and believe and grow in regarding leadership can be found in him. So as you've examined the life of Christ, as you've read the Gospels, as you've tried to model your life after his, what are some of the, the core principles of leadership that you've, that you've been able to pull out of, of the Gospels? Mm, 
beautiful question. I think the first would be that dignity piece. I mean, when you when you study the page of the gospel and you see the interactions that Jesus has, there's just such an absolute passionate love. You know, when you see him having this interaction with, um, for example, the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, this interaction, she she tried to avoid all the holy people, <laughs> if you will, in her life, because they usually came with judgment. And Jesus, the holiest of them all, comes with compassion and truth and uh, an invitation, you know, an invitation to lead and live a higher life. And that, that goes back to his to his motives. So the first thing for sure would be, you know, just the way that Jesus sees people to recognize their dignity, potential, and worth. And for all of us to carry that same disposition, I think is really, really important. Um, I think the second thing is to want um, for people much more than you want from people. Mm. And everybody can recognize that. You know, this, this is the ultimate thing. Leadership is always in the eyes of of other people. You know, whether you're a good leader or not is not for, for me to say, it's not for Pete Burak to say, it's for the people that we're trying to lead to say. They're the ones that can tell us, yeah, their motive is good. He wants what's best for me. He totally empowers me. Uh, he encourages my heart. Uh, you know, when I'm in his presence, I feel good about myself. You know, these kinds of things. So the motive is just such a such an important piece. Um, yeah, maybe I'll leave it there. Don't want to go on too long. No, no, that's that's very good. I, I, the motive, and in some ways, the motive is both an internal reality that is indiscernible from from anyone else. Like only you really know your motive, but can also be analyzed from external behavior. And I'm I'm wondering if there are some markers that we could use to evaluate our own hearts and our own motives. So if somebody's listening to this, thinking, thinking, okay. I, I think I'm called to be a leader, or there are people that are following me, um, but I'm not sure. Am I, am I being manipulative, or am I being? Am I willing they're good? What have you found are some ways to kind of evaluate that in your own heart? In your own heart, mm. you know, a lot of us, you know, even in people that have organizational titles and positions and whatnot, we we don't really have the ability to coerce in this day and age. It's such a, a kind of a trust economy that people just believe, and so one of the tests I think is. You know, like if you're if you're trying to be a strong leader and you might have your staff members back or their time or their expertise 40 hours a week, but one of the real tests of leadership is when was the last time one of your staff or your direct reports or just somebody on your team came into your office and closed the door and said, hey, can I talk to you about something personal? Because hmm. that to me is an indication that they they want something from you. They see a credibility in you as a leader. They see qualities of character and wisdom that extend beyond your employment status, if you will. And it's it's inviting into personal areas. That that to me is a real test. Are people coming to us outside of employment and all those, you know, things? Do they want you involved in personal things? Um, do they want you involved in, in in family things or, you know, just celebrations that they have or, you know, different things like that. So that is really, really a test. I mean, if you go day upon day upon day, you know, when all you're doing is asking people for things, um, tasks, assignments, and all that, and you're not checking in on them personally, like if you don't have a handle on what's going on with those that you work most closely with, 
um, in terms of their life and what's happening in the home and all that, chances are you you might be missing out on some of the leadership because those things naturally come when influence is there and it's strong and trust is high. Those things are popping out all the time, and uh, we have to we have to check. One of the things that I like to say is pay attention to your hellos and goodbyes. Hmm. Sometimes the people that we work closely with, we don't have a lot of interaction, but there's usually a hello and a goodbye. And is a hello, you know, met with a sincere, hey, how was last night? You had that family function. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. Just checking in makes all the difference. It, it fundamentally tells them that you actually care. And that goes back to motive. I mean, ultimately, it's about love, right? And, and love is practical, it's real, and it's lived out on a daily, on a daily basis like that. One of the radical things that Jesus did was he, he didn't always call who the world would have qualified as leaders, but he always qualified those he called, right? There was the, to be a leader with Jesus was not to be a perfect package already with all the gifts and talents that the world might recognize, but one of the radical stories of both the Gospels and the history of the Church is he calls the meek, he calls the small, he calls the broken, he calls the the dumb, he calls kind of those who the world might otherwise reject. What does that what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that um, everybody's called to leadership, everybody's called to influence, and the Lord, you know, the Scripture is very clear that God doesn't see as man sees, and the Lord looks at the heart, and he sees whose heart is true and good. And there's a great line out of Dallas Willard. He said that one of the primary works of God is to find men and women into whom he can entrust his power. And that speaks a lot more about character than it does about necessarily competence, although competence is very important. But um, to to have goodness within you, to have um, the character settled and grounded, I think the Lord loves those people. I mean, I have been so impacted by um, individuals who do not have the resume to be at the top of an organization, if you will. But man, the way they treat people with dignity, the way they deploy kindness and a Christ-centered attitude of service has me humbled very, very often. And uh, that's what the Lord looks looks at, and I think that's who he's called. Now, some of us, maybe you have some competence that would look good on a resume, and you can handle some organizational leadership. That's great. But if you have to choose between character and competence, choose character 100% of the time Mm. because character does not fail in the same way um, someone with competence lacking that character can easily fall and create a very toxic environment, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're talking with Brett Powell, who is the Archbishop's Delegate of Development and Ministries for the Archdiocese of Vancouver. He and his son actually created a workshop to help you discover some of your gifts and your leadership potential. We're going to talk to him about that after the break, as well as the leadership void in the church right now and what we as lay people can do about it. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak filling in for Al Cresta. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about spirit-filled leadership, because this is one of the things the world needs as we go about making disciples of all nations. We'll be right back. Christ is the Answer, with Father John Ricardo. Let us strive to know the Lord. Quick question to you and me right now. Is that what you and I are doing every single day? 
When you and I wake up every day, do we strive to know Jesus or not? In the Old Testament, in the same book of Hosea, a little bit later on, it's in chapter 14, the Lord says through the prophet, my people perish. Or in another translation, my people are being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Not a lack of data. We got tons of data. Not a lack of information. We got a lot of information. Not just about things that are happening in the world. We got a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information about God. But not a lot of intimacy with God. Not a lot of relationship with God. Not a lot of friendship. That's the cry of God's heart. God wants to give himself to us in the incredible gift of friendship. And we're not taking advantage of it. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. We Catholics have lots of ways to pray. Novenas, litanies, meditations, you name it, we've got it. With so many ways to pray, there's sure to be a way that fits your family. No matter how you pray, though, it's important to remember why we pray. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, prayer is, quote, a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God, close quote. When we sit down to pray as a family, we're not just checking off another chore on our to-do list. We're helping one another deepen our relationship with God and each other. If you're not sure where to begin, try this. Before meals and family gatherings, say, let's remember to take a moment to be in God's presence. And then take even 30 seconds to praise God, to thank Him, and to ask for His grace and blessing for your family. For more ideas about praying with your family, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popcheck, but you can call me family. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney, accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org.
Good afternoon, and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak. I'm filling in for Al Cresta today as he is enjoying presumably the sunshine and the sweet smell of the saltwater air down on the Good News Cruise. And we're here right now with Brett Powell, who works in the Archbishop's office in the Archdiocese of Vancouver. He's been a longtime disciple and leader in the church in many different ministries and and uh, not to embarrass him, but one of the, the men I most trust when it comes to understanding and walking and training people in leadership. So, Brett, we're talking about uh, leadership, leadership in the church, authentic leadership. But one of the things that's very clear as we look at the state of the church in the world is either corrupted leadership, and I'm not making a, a sweeping judgment call about anything within the hierarchy right now. I'm simply just talking about there seems to be a void in the church when it comes to Christ's life. Christ-like, spirit-filled leadership. Is that an accurate assessment? Oh, Pete, painfully, yes. I would agree. Good. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk more? about that then. Because what, as we look at that and we say, okay, there's a painful void or a, a painful lack or maybe an underdeveloped sense of leadership in many places in the Church, what, what are the fruits of that? So how, you say, yes, you agree, why would you agree? Like, what what gives you the evidence to say, yeah, I think this is, the things we're seeing in the church are indeed a product of either failed leadership, underdeveloped leadership, or uh, a void of leadership? Yeah. Well, I mean, I just really believe that one of the the major arenas that leaders need to care for and cultivate and strengthen and deepen is culture. Mm. And culture is primarily determined by what you tolerate. So what we have tolerated for far too long is some things like mediocrity. We've tolerated um, a lack of vision. We have tolerated, um, in certain cases, I would speak you know, to some of the, the brutal cases of abuse and all that, things got tolerated that should never have been tolerated. Mm -hmm. And it became the culture. And culture work takes time, and it takes absolute persistence and courage and conviction and charity, no doubt, but it really comes down to what we tolerate and what we reward. And um, that, that has been all of the things that we've seen, either they're secondary or primary, but culture impacts them all, mm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Forming culture has is, is, is been a huge omission, I feel. Um, unfortunately, in the church. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the great gifts of being Catholic is this uh, divinely inspired structure of leadership uh, that is literally handed down from Jesus and has been passed down through the popes and the bishops That that is a great gift to us. It's one yeah. of the things most, one of the greatest gifts that the the Lord gave us was this the institution of the church and and she is worth celebrating and she is worth protecting she's worth you know really laying our life down for in many ways and you are one who is working within the institutional church right now as part of the Archdiocese of Vancouver as a lay person but for somebody who maybe isn't employed by the bishop but longs to see uh, the local church thrive and either has discernible leadership gifts or is feeling some sort of call to influence within their parish community, what would you recommend for them? How would you invite them to start as somebody who is both a layperson but also working within the institutional church? Where do we begin? 
Where do we begin making an impact, developing our leadership? Yeah, if I'm a layperson saying, okay, I'm not employed yeah. to do this, but I care, yeah, yeah. and I want to do something, um, but I'm not entirely sure where to start. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, we really need to be discerning with um, who we are and what gifts we have and all those things is, is very important. I firmly believe, Pete, that when every single person that we lock eyes with, uh, there was a moment in time when nobody knew they were even created in their mother's womb. Even parents who are intentional and using NFP and they kind of know the season, they don't know the exact moment. But when every single human being that we lock eyes with was conceived in the womb of their mother, God knew. Mm. And God had a very clear idea of what and who he had just created with all of their charisms, their competencies, their personality, everything. And God saw it and it was good. So what all of us, the challenge that all of us have is to bring a sincere gift of self to the world. And we need to go to our Heavenly Father and say, Father, who am I? Help me understand who I am so that I can make a sincere gift of self to the world and not waste any of my time or energy trying to be a persona, trying to present something to the world that I'm actually not. So seriously asking that question, Father, who, who am I? What is my identity? Who am I in you? Who have you created me to be? And then offering that as a sincere gift, generously, sacrificially. Um, even things like, um, you know, St. Catherine of Siena Institute and their spiritual inventory, um, taking things like that to help us understand ourselves is, is really important. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I think charity has to rule all of the contributions that we want to make. Mm. Um, one of the greatest stories that I've seen in terms of a parish really being renewed started when one layperson, who is one of the most gifted people I know, I mean, this person could do anything in a parish, and he went to his pastor and he said, I just want to help, you know, what can I do? And the pastor said, well, my bathroom needs to be retiled. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'll retile the bathroom. Well, you fast forward after years of selfishly or selflessly giving himself and ser serving the pastor and anything else. This is one of the most renewed parishes that I've seen. Mm. And a lot of it stemmed with his humility to just, you know, put uh, his ego aside and just serve, serve, serve. So, you know, sometimes I think the charity side, when we really want to make an impact, we have to invest in charity and just coming alongside people that need help and offering whatever we can to help. And over time, we'll be given more and more opportunities perhaps to use some of the charisms and the gifts that God has given us in more, you know, specific and concrete ways. But that, that has to start. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of where I want to go next here is that Jesus is very aware of who we are, both in our strengths and in our weakness. And he also understands that what he's calling us to is not, uh, we're not capable of arriving to that place on our own strength. And so this is where the Holy Spirit comes in to kind of bring about that spirit-filled leadership that we started the segment with. Could you speak to a little bit in your own experience and just kind of as you understand the church and, and leadership, why a life filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is is so essential to the type of leadership that is distinct from the world 
that can maybe build off the wisdom of the world, but can actually produce what we might call kingdom fruit. That only in you know, a disciple who's who's living out their expression of leadership and influence, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, is really only only that person is capable of leading and fulfilling that great commission, the the actual making of disciples, the new evangelization that we like to talk about. That that flows from spirit filled leadership. Is how would you describe that? Absolutely, flows from the Holy Spirit. We will not have the new evangelization in the absence of a new Pentecost. We absolutely need a new Pentecost in the Church. And when we look at, you know, you consider the Church today, Pete. You're in the Church, I'm in the Church. We have so many resources still, even though Christendom is falling and all the rest of it, but we have so many resources. We have financial resources. We have human resources. We have buildings. We have some kind of societal presence um, as a Church. Well, the early Church had none of that. And yet they operated with absolute boldness and conviction. And you have to ask, why were they, with lacking so much, were able to so powerfully witness to the gospel? And yet we who have so much are like operating with timidity and fear most of the time. And of course the answer is Pentecost. It's a Pentecost moment. And we know that corporately, as a church, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And we know that individually. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a beautiful story out of um, the gospel. I forget which gospel it is, but it's a story when, you know, the, the apostles were, Peter was out fishing all night in the boat, and then he sees Jesus, and Jesus gets into the boat, and this is the Lord's sense of humor, fishing on the same lake with the same net, the same boat, you know, and probably because he's quite funny, the exact same spot that Peter fished all night and caught nothing. And he says, let down your net through a catch, and they catch everything in this great haul of fish. Well, what made the difference? The presence of Jesus. This is the Spirit of Jesus that comes into our lives. We can do a lot of things in the flesh that will lead to no fruit at all. But when we have the power of the Spirit, as they had the presence of Jesus in the boat, and it led to so many amazing results, fishing, so we as disciples desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit animating everything we do, and then we will begin to see spirit fruit coming from our lives and our witness. And it seems like it's it's basically as simple as that in some ways, if to just open ourselves to the grace of our confirmation and baptism to say, I have been equipped, I have been empowered, and whatever the Lord's calling me to, He always provides everything we need. In your life, have you experienced that reality of being called to something and then discovering as you begin to do it that, oh, wow, the Lord has actually empowered me to do this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, my... It's interesting, Pete, you probably don't know this about me, but when I was growing up, um, I had serious anxiety. I was one of these kids in class that would never even raise his hand. Even if I was utterly convinced I had the right answer, I just couldn't do it. I was gripped with fear. Public speaking, sharing my thoughts and ideas with other people was like, I can never do that. And it, to me, it is a it's a fruit of conversion a work of the Spirit in my life to, to give me enough comfort in who I am as a person, loved by the Father, empowered and equipped to do the work that He's appointed me to do. And now it's just a matter of responding moment by moment, year by year, you know, event by event, or whatever. Hmm. But I was absolutely gripped by fear uh, and had anxiety about presenting and sharing and all the rest of it. And, I mean, it, it's like that with everything. Yeah. Um, 
I, I have way more confidence now than I ever would have had, even in parenting, mm. um, which yeah. is quite a scary endeavor, as you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that and I can only say that's the Holy Spirit and His active presence, um, His active presence in my life. Amazing. Well, thank you, Brett. Thank you for your service to the Lord. Real quick, if somebody wants to learn more about what you're doing or how to connect with you, where, where can they go? Thanks, Pete. Yeah, they can just head to my website, brettpowell.org. I've got a blog. The podcast is going up soon, so they can, they can start there. Very good. Thank you, Brett. We've been talking about spirit-filled leadership here on Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about Catholic education with Edmund Miller. So stick around. This is Crested in the Afternoon. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Do you own popular index mutual funds or ETFs? If so, you're automatically owned shares of companies that conflict with your moral beliefs. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. The experienced professional portfolio managers make decisions based on investment fundamentals and pro-life values. You can learn more about Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? Services.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around because it had to destroy itself no one can live on being an enemy of God it's too crazy it's too absurd it's too dark it's too bleak God is beautiful God is holy why in the world mock God the people you know and trust are on EWTN What is the essence of the fourth commandment? 
In ordering us to honor our mother and our father, the Lord God has willed that after him we should revere our parents to whom we owe life and who have handed on to us the knowledge of God. The Catholic Catechism says the fourth commandment shows us the order of charity. It introduces the subsequent commandments concerned with special respect for life, marriage, earthly goods, and speech. It constitutes one of the foundations of the social doctrines of the Church. It is expressed specifically to children regarding their relationships to their parents because it is the most universal, but it also involves ties of kinship to the extended family and encompasses duties to elders, ancestors, pupils to teachers, employees to employers, citizens to their country, and to those who govern it. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Burak, filling in for Al. We want to talk about education and Catholic education. And so here today with me is a good friend, Edmund Miller. He is the co-founder of Guadalupe Workers and a longtime educator, deep thinker, wise guy. (laughs) Edmund Miller, welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, gee, thanks for that introduction. Yes. Glad to know I'm a wise guy. Very wise. I mean that in the the proper sense, both a guy and wise. Yeah. (laughs) So, Edmund, uh, you wrote an article back in 1997 that Bryant pulled for me, and I read it, and I thought, wow, this is every bit as applicable then as it is now. I mean, the, the, the points you're pulling out about emotions, reason, the role of education, it's just, in, in many ways, it's even more applicable now than even maybe it was then. Could, right. could we start here just on a, a quick high-level view? As we talk about education, how should we properly think about it? Because I think there's lots of misconceptions as to what is the purpose of education or how we would even define education in a society. Well, the mistake being made um, across the board is that education is a process of giving the students stuff. Um, and giving the students, quote, the tools that they need to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. And that's done in the Catholic institutions, and that's done in the secular institutions, so much so that, to a certain extent, um, with the more mainstream Catholic institutions, there's really nothing that primarily distinguishes them from the other institutions other than the fact that they might have you know, dress code and a little tighter disciplinary um, atmosphere in the school. But the educational process is essentially the same. And again, um, the educational process being that which seeks to prepare the the young man, the young woman, for what they call the real world. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what's going on in, in the world right now. And... Um, uh, my, my thesis, and I and the thesis of of many, um, but we are fewer and more far between, is that um, education is actually it's not the process of stuffing the the kids with all of this information and giving them tools. It it's not that at all. It's the process of um, well, in the Latin root, education means leading out and that is what education has to do and 
it we lead out in education by essentially showing the student a some form of a beauty and this is the um this is the mystery of the human person that um you know most educational institutions are going to attack the intellect well not the attack but mm-hmm. address the intellect but what catholic schools need to do um is also address the will cuz the intellect can be formed from day 1 to to day 10 and it it means nothing unless the will of the student is formed as well and so the will has to be drawn out the will has to and the person has to um be um be shown not even be taught but the person has to be shown a beauty that the the cosmos does make sense and you make sense in the cosmos and there is something for which you are made and something for which you should um, you should strive because it's really part of human nature. So the human person is indeed made for God. And we can say that in a pious way, And um, but it's, it's fundamentally philosophically true that the person is made for God because we have these three aspects of the human person. We have the intellect and the body and the will. And all three of these aspects of the human person are doing what they are they are looking out the intellect looks out asks questions wants truth the body is looking for beauty through the sensory perceptions and the will wants to belong the will wants community um so we are we are a creature but we're made with these these three-pronged antennas so to speak through the intellect and the body and the will we're 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 destined towards something um, and that something is ultimately the beauty of God and beauty of relationship with God. And th- there's a kind of instruction that goes with all that of how do you recognize beauty and um, how you see it in the cosmos. So the whole business of drawing the student out, not just cramming it in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the great ironies, I think, of modern culture that's tied to this is this pursuit of freedom and freedom actively being redefined often more just like whatever do whatever you want as long as it doesn't Mm -hmm. in some mysterious way impose on somebody else and what one of the defining markers of this modern freedom is a overemphasis or a um a recognition of feelings of emotions that a lot of people the most true thing about them would be what they feel. I am there. I I feel. Therefore, I am has become a <laughs> a kind of a way to live, right? Right. And the irony is, is that then that actually leads to a bondage to to your feelings and an inability to to give freely. Mm-hmm. And in this article, you you are tying the concept of authentic freedom to education. So how should we understand kind of what proper education should do? in regards to helping somebody live a truly free life? Well, um, that, that's that's very good and good that you brought that out. Um, so what what is the nature of freedom? Freedom is um, not that kind of impulsive reaction that you described, which, and I was even talking to my students last week about this and saying that, you know, when we... we 
we put so much emphasis on emotions and you go on America's Got Talent and you get a golden buzzer or whatever if you show emotion and have an emotional story to tell and then everybody falls all over you. <laughs> um, not that I've been on America Got Talent <laughs> yeah, lately. Personal but, experience here? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that is not right. freedom. That is compulsion. When the emotions, which are essentially the, the hormones and the chemicals, when they are driving you towards some kind of action, we act freely when we see a good, when we see a good out beyond us somewhere. And we act freely when we choose that good and are able to take the steps towards that good um, no matter what else is around us. And, and that's, again, that's all part of the, the idea of drawing the student out because that, that good which we see, that is also the same beauty that um, Catholic education should be showing so that um, our students do see clearly where they are going. And in seeing clearly where they are going, um, they move directly which is, that is free action. Um, and my simple illustration, again, for my students is, okay, let's say that I want everybody to leave this classroom. How are you going to leave most freely? Are you going to leave most freely by taking whatever direction you want? No, that would be something along the lines of chaos. So you will move freely when you actually see the good of the door. And you say, that is where I'm going. And there is no longer, you know, the world is no longer infinite possibility, which is indeed slavery, mm. infinite possibility. Um, but when you see something that is verifiably good, objectively good, and can move towards that, you are moving in freedom. You had this line in here where you said, in the modern view, this then is man one who has lost both truth and freedom and who lives subject to emotions he cannot understand or deny. Mm -hmm. Which I think is one of the clearer, more spot-on definitions of the modern man that I've read in a while. And so, if, the, if, if what you propose here is true, that man has lost both truth and freedom and lives subject to emotions he cannot understand or deny, in your personal experience, how do you help a student undo that or actually live by the true definition of man which is not this uh yeah mm. what does that process look like in the context of a, an academic or an educational setting whoa that's a big yeah we have <laughs> very, four minutes left a <laughs> big question um you you teach him out of himself um mm. you don't constantly um, redirect the world towards him. So in the few minutes that we have, a, a quick example. Um, so let's say we're in a literature class and we're reading, we're reading The Crucible. So the modern approach to The Crucible or to the modern approach to any kind of literature is, okay, students, what does this mean to you? Hmm. And that is not education. That is emotional study, uh, psychological study to a certain extent. It's not education because the student has to be uh, shown how to read the structure of the work, how to appreciate the good of the work. So the student should be going out towards the work of literature, not the work of literature being brought back to the student. 
So this is done in in literature. This is done in in history, and we have revision history after revision history, and it's all being brought back to us, to the modern man, and um, that is that's the reverse of true education. Would you say that that's a symptom of um, again the modern mindset that I am the protagonist of my story, and everyone else is? Is part of the story insofar right. as I either allow them to be or they influence my my journey. But I'm the hero, and I get to then define kind of the ups and downs, and it's my experience that matters most. Right. It's the philosophical statement that's 300 years old or so now that existence precedes essence. So we form ourselves um, faults. Hmm. Yeah. Um, existence does not precede essence. Our essence, our nature, our humanity is our the gift to us. Um, we don't form it. We don't create it out of our own past, out of our own actions. Um, we simply have the task of perfecting it. And I would imagine that in your work with Guadalupe Workers, which is a, a pro-life organization, that that this is this is one of the major symptoms of this mindset in this this whole story that we're describing is all of a sudden this can lead to the logical conclusion in some way twisted logical conclusion that that i can kill this other child because uh my freedom trumps their freedom or my story trumps their story or you can come about a justification in that right right and it also highlights you know what you were talking about earlier that um, the difference between compelled action and free action and the the pro choice movement is is a lie it 's a lie from beginning to end because this is not choice. this is compulsion compulsion to emotion, compulsion to circumstances. No one happily dances into the abortion clinic they 're all driven in there mm. in a kind of uh, slavery mm. well, thank you for the work that you 're doing edmund if If somebody would like to learn more about what you 're doing, where can they go and what can they do? Well, um, in terms of <laughs> education, uh, the articles are out there. Um, this is just one of them. There have been others. Um, they're, they're all, you can find them online. And in terms of the pro-life work, GuadalupeWorkers.org. That's, that's where we are, GuadalupeWorkers.org. Wonderful. We're here with Edmund Miller talking about education and freedom. You should you should go online and search some of these articles. Uh, this one I was referencing was from the Social Justice Review from uh, January and February of 1997, titled "Education and Freedom." Uh, opened my mind to some things, and it's it's a real contribution. So thank you, Edmund. This is Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Barak. We'll be right back. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. 
how important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. There's more to it than reciting the act of spiritual communion. We should begin by having sincere repentance for our sins and affirming our belief that Christ's death redeemed us. Next, we call to mind the spiritual gifts found in Christ's sacrifice and thank God earnestly for them. Now we are disposed to pray the traditional prayer of spiritual communion. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. This has been Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Pete Barak, filling in for Al. Let's say a prayer for Al and the whole team and the participants down on the Good News Cruise, uh, that they would have a safe voyage, that they'd have a great opportunity to draw closer to each other, and most importantly, to the Lord. So come Holy Spirit, fill all those on the Good News Cruise with your spirit. I want to thank our various guests today. Uh, Lots of good conversations. I particularly enjoyed that last one with Edmund on education and freedom, and I just want to reiterate that to go look up some of his work, because I think it's such an important contribution to how we're thinking about educating our children, how we understand freedom, how we understand and very exist our very existence and so important that we have a well-formed mind on these things once again i'm pete burak i've been filling in for al today which i thoroughly enjoy we will be back with crest in the afternoon tomorrow thank you so much god bless Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.